0: welcome to the siren thriving podcast inspiring you to own your years and thrive for life a place where we think money helps you become more of who you already are the sunlight to your seed
1: hello friends welcome to another episode of siren thriving you are listening to episode number one of our financial fitness series with siren and sasha where we help absolute beginner investors get started on their journey to financial freedom by making investing accessible for any and everyone through digestible, organized, and action-oriented content. And now bringing in my co-host for this series, the amazing Sasha. Welcome, Sasha.
0: Hi, I'm Sasha, the co-host who likes Ezekiel Toast.
1: The most. Awesome. So we're going to dive right in. Today, as promised, we're going to start with the basis of everything that we're going to do in the series, which is money. So, I wanted to start off by saying that I really resisted this being the first episode because from what I do understand about money is that I don't understand shit. But Sasha convinced me that if we're going to understand anything about investing, We should understand the building blocks on which investing is made from. And if your goal of listening to this podcast is to make money, then you should know what it is. So, Sasha, let's get started. What is money?
0: Uh, Let me ask you that question. You and I have discussed money several times. And why don't you give me your Answer what money is?
1: I have to start with the actual definition that that I know, the very simple definition that it's a medium of exchange. It's a piece of paper or a coin that has value in it, and then we use it to buy things. So it's Uh a way to buy things.
0: Okay. Was that easy to explain what money is, even in those words? And do you feel that's a complete answer?
1: No, not at all. (laughs) I know that it's so much more complex than that.
0: Yeah, there's a a lot of nuance and historical um, context for understanding how civilization came to use money and how how money has evolved and what money is today, that even the most sophisticated economists will have a hard time explaining money to you. That's Mm -hmm. not something they really teach you in economics. Maybe briefly, it's not a big focus and it's sort of ignored and it's Vital to understanding investing. If you don't understand what money is, you're going to have a hard time understanding inflation. If you don't understand what money is, you're going to have a hard time understanding opportunity cost of capital.
1: Okay, so because those are episodes that are coming up in our series very soon, for those that are feeling impatient about understanding money in this very deep way, stay with us and know that Understanding it will help you understand those concepts. With something like money, it's something that we use all the time. It is how we eat, it's how we get around, it's how we buy clothes. And I feel this resistance in my mind and in my heart when I need to basically admit that I don't know the definition of this thing that I've been using forever. Now, of course, we don't know the definition of every single thing that we use. I'm a huge foodie, I love food. But I don't know the ingredients of every single thing that I eat, right? And I don't need to. But guess what? If I want to cook, if I want to be a chef, I better learn. So this really excites me to start understanding money this way. And you using these examples and really tying it together with our behaviors as human beings. It, It feels really empowering, actually. So yeah, I'm convinced. Let's get into it. Where should we start? I think having
0: a historic context of what is money and how money has evolved or how money emerges it, it is important. So we can take it from h- how it emerged as a medium of exchange.
1: Okay, let's go deep. Let's go to the beginning of time. Let's go from why human beings even exchange things in the first place.
0: Sure. So if you, if you think about it, humans are a networking species. And one way we solve uh, some problems is by specialization, right? And if, if, I, if I make, let's say tools and you grow crops, it's better for you to grow whatever corn and for me to make the shovels that help you grow the corn than for you to also make the shovels and grow the corn and for me to do the same. By us specializing, We can have net more goods. We can have more shovels and more corn because one of us will specialize in making corn and you will make just corn. You'll be the best at making corn and I will specialize in making shovels. I'll be the best at making shovels, right? Mm -hmm. And because I'm so good at making shovels, I will trade some of my shovels for some corn from you. You'll trade some of your corn for some shovels from me and we'll both have more shovels and corn. And Mm -hmm. this is the whole idea of human species, complex interactions that trade. In this example, we're using barter, right? We're trading goods with each other. We're still networking with each other and we're exchanging goods to collectively have more. Mm -hmm. And this becomes more and more complex when there's more actors in the market, right? There's somebody growing apples. There's somebody chopping wood, right? There's more and more goods that are being bartered for.
1: Mm-hmm. So, let's pause there for a second and just really solidify this concept of bartering. That's as basic as we get. Human beings all need stuff, and not everyone can make everything that they need,
0: yeah. the 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 net exchange will be more of both items because mm-hmm. of specialization. And everybody knows this deeply because in our society, because of this process, we are all specialists. Mm-hmm. If you ask somebody, "What's your profession? What's your career?" Whatever they say, it's, it's a specialized field. Mm-hmm. You're spending most of your day doing this one thing. Therefore, you're specializing at it. You're becoming better at it, you're becoming master at it, you're becoming more efficient at it. Mm-hmm. Right that makes you more productive at that one thing than if you were trying to do every single thing in your life for yourself.
1: Okay, got it. So it's actually pretty deep and spiritual. We all need each other. And we all have proclivities or natural talents for certain things. So this is how human beings have operated forever. And that is why we do this human behavior called bartering. And what naturally comes out of that is specialization. Okay, got it. So what's next?
0: Because of this specialization, through barter, we come to uh, a three-headed problem in barter, which is called coincidence problems. Coincidence of wants. And there's three dimensions to this. The first is called the non-coincidence of scale. Imagine that you're trying to trade hats for a house. You can't acquire a fraction of a house for one hat, right? And the owner of the house doesn't want 10,000 hats for the house. So that's the problem of scale. The number of things I have for the number of things you want. Mm -hmm. We both have to want exactly the quantities that those are equivalent in value to. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. The second one is location. Let's say, same idea, hats and house. What is the coincidence that the person that wants all these hats has the house in the location I want, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Not very likely either. The third one is coincidence of time. Let's say you were growing apples, right? So you're trying to accumulate enough apples to trade for this house. Since the apples are perishable, they will likely rot before the deal can be completed. So Mm -hmm. the time value is another problem there that you would want those apples at that minute when we make the deal or that they won't rot in time by the time we shake hands on the deal.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, incidentally, I have 10,000 people outside right now that each want one apple exactly. So this system works great.
0: So only way to resolve this three-dimensional problem is with an indirect exchange where you seek to find another person with a good desire by both counterparties. So let's say I have hats and you have the house and we both want horses. So the person will take horses for the house, but I don't have any horses. But the third person that has the horses wants the apples, right? So I trade my apples for the horses and I give the horses to the person with the house, right? There's the third thing that's involved in this trade that makes everybody happy. That third thing that is the indirect exchange between us two becomes this intermediary good that makes the deal possible to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And gradually, that good becomes the most common good that everybody wants. Let's mm-hmm. say might be horses at the start, but then you realize horses die and you can't transport horses. And over time, a good will emerge that solves this problem, as the most intermediary good that serves serves as the best for exchanging between all these other parties.
1: Mm, okay. So let's really hold on to that concept right now. So an intermediary, and that example was horses. Both parties want horses, and then they figured what would be worth it to them to trade for the items that they actually want. But just like the other problems, horses are not easy to use as an intermediary. So what I think you're getting at is that human beings will naturally find a good, or just to use even more of a layman's term, just a thing that facilitates trading, that makes trading easier than a horse or 10,000 apples.
0: Yeah, so over time, people tend to gradually converge on a single medium of exchange, or at most a few, as it simplifies trade. And a good that becomes accepted as the medium of exchange is commonly called money. So whatever Mm. that good that bubbles up, that everybody accepts and is known to be easily accepted by others is called money.
1: Mm, There it is. There's money, folks. But don't worry, we're not stopping there. We're going to elaborate a little bit more. Okay. So in the examples you gave, would it be correct to say that in those cases, the hats were money or the apples were money or the horses were money?
0: Well, the hats and apples were goods until we discovered the horses there. And since everybody accepted horses, then horses were money in that example.
1: Mm, As an intermediary in that example, I got it.
0: So money, in other words, offers the user pure optionality to exchange it for any good available in the marketplace. So another way of saying it, it's the most liquid good or asset within the trading network, because you can trade it for anything. So the market naturally chooses the good as money that best solves those three coincidence of want problem. So scalability can be thought of as how well can you divide whatever you're calling money into smaller units, or how well can you group it into a bigger unit, depending on the transaction you're trying to make, right? If you're trying to buy a bag of apples, whatever, $5. If you're trying to buy a house, $500,000. You just change the amount of units of the thing you called money, right? It could be gold. It's a brick of gold or a coin of gold. The The scale of the money is easily changed for you to complete the transaction, trading it for whatever else you want in the market. Mm-hmm. So that becomes money, whatever solves that best. That's mm-hmm. one of the things, scalability. The other thing is space, the, the coincidence of wants of location. So if a good is easily transported, if you're, if you're selling a factory you, in California, you can't just pick it up and send it to New York if you're using the factory as your money. But if mm-hmm. you sell it gold, you can put the gold on a plane and be transported across space. And the third one is across time, money has to hold its value into the future. So being resistant to rot or corrosion. If your money was iron, iron corrodes. If it's apples, they rot. So whatever money is, has to be durable throughout time. And it can't be counterfeited or uh, supply of it can't just magically increase, right? If you're using grains of sand, somebody can just go on the beach, grab a bunch of sand and introduce in the market and... Now diluted the whole supply of money.
1: Okay, so the next iteration that became universal in a lot of ways was what material. So a good idea bubbled up
0: is precious metals, silver and gold, because they were hard, you can't counterfeit it. Work needed to be produced to extract it, and gold doesn't corrode or rot.
1: So precious metals is the good that naturally became the most popular medium of exchange, in other words, form of money. And it, because it met all of the criteria you named, could you go through each criteria one more time and explain how precious metals fit those criteria?
0: Yes, the way precious metals solved the three coincidence of wants are they're divisible. You can divide gold or you can mint them into smaller and smaller coins. You can you know, put three coins together to buy a horse or half a coin to buy a bag of apples or whatever. Scalable across space, while well, it's easier to transport a bag of gold than it is to transport a whole house. And then across time, because precious metals maintain over time, they don't rot, they don't corrode, and they're hard to counterfeit and also have a predictable supply because There's tons of gold sitting somewhere that can just appear out of nowhere. We know that it's in in the ground. It's hard to find. It's very scarce.
1: Okay. So let's just layer it on again. We got to the human behavior of bartering, which leads to specialization, which brings up the problems of the coincidence of wants. And we learned that human beings found goods that would solve this problem. And throughout time, because they addressed the problem the most efficiently, precious metals became the most widely accepted good for use as money. So, how long has gold been a form of money? And then, how did we get from gold to the form of money that we know today?
0: Sure. So, money is suspected to have been used uh, for about five thousand years. Markets naturally select monetary good that best satisfies those traits that we talked about earlier or coincidence of wants. But there's also other traits that determine how a particular monetary good is uh, good as a form of money. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay.
0: And so some of these traits are hardness, how resistant it is to the increase in supply or debasement of its value, how fungible it is, Uh, Fungible is an economic word. It means that one unit of it is indistinguishable from another one. Mm -hmm. If if you throw your dollar bill in a pile and pull up another dollar bill, you don't care. It's fungible to you. Another desirable trait of of good money is ease of transporting or transmitting it across distance. Mm -hmm. If it's something extremely heavy or large, then it becomes difficult. Another one is durability. We talked about this across time. Is it resistant to rot or corrosion or deterioration of of its value? How divisible it is? Is it easily subdivided as a monetary unit? Is it secure? Is it hard to forge or counterfeit? And is it a trusted source? Does it have sovereignty? Do you need permission to interact with it? Is there a consensus by everybody that it's accepted? So... Money that fulfills these traits is thought to be good.
1: Okay, awesome. So I just want to repeat the list of the traits again to help it sink in.
0: So hardness, fungibility, portability, durability, divisibility, security, and sovereignty.
1: Okay, all of those make sense. And I see how precious metals fulfilled all of those. But now I'm starting to see... How currency, as we know it today, became the progression.
0: Yeah, so precious metals solved a lot of those really well. But they also didn't solve them perfectly. So there's technological advancements to any money over time. So one way to make gold better at some of these things, but worse at others, which we'll discuss in the next episode. But to make it more portable, what people would do is they would take their gold to the lo- local blacksmith that would be making coins anyways. And blacksmiths, they would store this and secure it. Obviously, if you think about it, if everybody has a bunch of gold, they have to bury it or have a vault or have some way of securing it, right? Which takes time and energy, which is an added cost. So if, if I just leave my gold at the blacksmith and he gives me a paper note, it says, hey, Sasha's gold is here. And if you bring this note back, I'll give you the gold. So it allowed me to transport all this gold, just a piece of paper. So it made it more portable. And it made it more secure because now I don't have all this gold on me that somebody can clearly see and steal from me. So it became this like promissory note, or you can think of it as checks, or you can think of it as a bearer instrument. If I have this note that says... Redeemable for this much gold, whoever has that can go get that gold. So it's mm-hmm. so it this note backed by gold that made it uh more portable and, and also made it more divisible. Now I can write a note that says get half of Sasha's gold, and I don't have to carry half of my gold. Mm-hmm. So this is how sort of banking came to be, but also how paper was introduced as money that was backed
1: by gold. I see. Okay. So even though precious metals like gold solved a lot of those problems, portability and security was still an issue. Okay. So thank you for so beautifully illustrating the progression from bartering to gold to paper money. And I think because paper money is what is most familiar to us today in 2021, and this system of having this piece of paper the note gold is how banking came to be it just got more and more formalized over time
0: i guess so you can think of it as a technological advancement of that money which made it more portable made it more secure and also made it more divisible because i don't i don't have to take my coin and break it in half to make a smaller coin if i want to make a smaller purchase I just have to write a note that says you're entitled to a smaller amount of gold. And just take this one step further is, you said a paper is how we mostly know money now, but it's not. Money has already evolved past paper, now it's digital. So right. by going to digital, it also solved a lot of these problems, right? You, you hardly ever lose digital money unless identity stolen, for example, but it made it more portable. You can send money on Venmo really quickly now,
1: That's such a huge realization. Can you say that again?
0: Yeah, so you said that that's how we evolved from metal money to paper money that we're most familiar with now, but we're actually past paper money. We're into digital money. And arguably we are on the cusp of transitioning to the next form of digital money, which is non-fiat
1: money. Okay, there goes a new term. Before we get into that, (laughs) that is such an important Concept to understand. At one point in history, it took a certain form. It was much more physical. And then it became a metal and then it became paper. And within our lifetime, it has become digital. Okay. So I think we're there. Now that we understand money as a concept, can we touch a little bit on how money is supplied now? Because we have money that is made digitally which in other words, some people call it printing money. Could you explain what that means?
0: Yeah, so it, it, it's a loaded term and there is a little bit of history there. The word fiat needs to be explained. Yeah, sure. So everybody seen the musical Hamilton. Raise your mm-hmm. hand if you have. So... Alexander Hamilton is a famous historic figure for a lot of reasons, but one thing that he did, and I don't think a lot of people know this, is he pegged the dollar to gold. He said, one U.S. dollar bill is worth one gram of gold, and you could take your paper dollar bill printed by the U.S. Treasury, take it to the bank, and they will give you one gram of gold, and most people opted not to do this because paper money was easier to carry around. Fast forward to all the allies in Europe, because they felt unsafe of being invaded by Germany and the instability generally in Europe. They felt their gold reserves were in danger of being robbed through war. They shipped all their gold to the United States. And the United States, all these allied countries, signed an agreement at Bretton Woods Conference, which made the United States hold all, everybody's gold and made it redeemable. 30 uh, ounce of gold was then redeemable for $35. Think about that. Used to be one gram of gold, $1. Mm. How many more dollars it took to get about the same amount of gold over time? And over time, U.S. started producing more paper notes, more dollars than there was gold backing it. And this is the folly of every government to make more money, than it is backed by. All, all these allies in Europe realized this and they started demanding their gold back. They would redeem it. There was this redemption place and they would send their dollars in a ship, physically in a boat to America. And they would have that boat escorted by submarines and warships, ship their gold back to Germany and France and whoever. And US got wise to this because they won't have enough gold once everybody redeems it, there's going to be a deficit. And they just broke the agreement and said, no more. We're temporarily closing this redemption window. Mm. Right. And there's a, a beautiful quote there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program.
1: Oh, that's so good and painfully true.
0: <laughs> so this is 1971. This is under Richard Nixon. We officially got off the gold standard. Mm. And US said, We were no longer redeemed gold uh, for dollars. Now it will be backed by faith in our government, Mm. which is known as fiat, acceptable money by decree. That's what fiat means, by decree of the government. So they're saying this is legal tender. You must accept it. And it's by government decree. It's not backed by anything. Mm. And ever since then, if you look at the chart, We've been just printing printing more money. And by printing, it's not necessarily physical dollar bills. At this point in, in, in time, it is ones and zeros being sent from the Federal Reserve. And when actually money needs to be printed, then the Treasury will mint the money. But for now, it's the Federal Reserve just loans out money to the banks mm-hmm. digitally.
1: Wow. My head is spinning from just how much history we've covered regarding money okay so you've clarified that printing money does not necessarily mean the physical printing of money so would this be a correct summary that we had gold and paper money was an improvement of the form of money but then via printing we have now debased the value or there money is, as we know it.
0: It, it it is uh way too tempting for anybody that has the power to make money not to make more of it literally no government in the world has resisted this temptation
1: mm. and does this lead us to drum roll please <laughs> inflation I don't know why I'm saying that like it's a great thing. (laughs) It's actually pretty bad.
0: It is. And it brings us to the the ground floor of what inflation is and how it impacts our investing and our savings and our money and why we should know about it and invest to combat.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, our dear listeners, y'all are going to have to tune into the next episode to learn all about inflation. So thank you for listening. Thank you again, Sasha. And we'll see you all in the next episode
0: may the force of compound interest be with you
1: all right thrivers if you are interested in more free content or you want to support the podcast please visit sirenthriving.com